What does filmed for IMAX mean? It isn't just a movie that'll look great on IMAX's screens. It means that hiding from a sandstorm feels like fear in every flicker. And every triumph is felt in every sound wave. And the things we've only imagined, you can truly experience those too. That's what filmed for IMAX means. Get tickets to Experience Dune Part 2 now and IMAX's exclusive expanded aspect ratio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Forever. Dog. On today's episode of Weekend at Bergman's, Horror Month concludes with a couple grisly slashers about the terrors of American city planning and murder weapons that you can get at your local hardware store. Representing the art house, it's Abel Ferrara's 1979 new wave grindhouse nightmare, The Driller Killer. And representing the mainstream, it's the original Candyman from 1992, written and directed by Bernard Rose from a story by Clive Barker, guys, and starring Tony Todd and Virginia Madsen. Brett, are you ready? Oh, I'm ready, baby. Then Brian, roll that theme song. Every week, you and I watch two movies together. Well, not quite together, because we watch them apart. You at your house and me at mine. Whoa, every week, we watch the same two movies. Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. But how do we change those two, choose those two movies? I'm not going to say it five times. Well, one is a brilliant, beautiful work of cinematic art, the height of the medium. And the other one is mainstream. I'm talking popcorn, baby. Hollywood endings. What happens when we watch them back to back and have to say which one we like better sorry and we have to be honest oh welcome welcome to halloween at bergman's we're gonna watch an art house movie in a mainstream movie and then we're going to decide which one we like better, and the one that we like better is going to go into the canon, and the one that we do not like is going to go in the trash canon, and we are never going to be able to watch it again. Happy Halloween, everyone. Welcome to Weekend at Bergman's. My name is Joe Cilio, and I'm along with my co-host, who's zooming in from home today with his beautiful baby oh, boy, yeah, baby. is my partner, Brett Boehm. Hello, Brett. Oh, how's it going? It's so glad to be here on Weekend at Bergman's. It's so nice uh, of you to pop by. Sorry I can't by. be there with no. you in studio. Bit of a crazy one today. Um, but Sandy and I are chilling out here at, uh, home and we're so excited. That's Sandy l- has a lot of thoughts about the driller killer. Yep. 
Um, I'm just kidding. He did not watch the Driller Killer. Well, that's killer. not true because um, I saw a tweet today when you were watching the Driller Killer on a screen right next to a screen playing Miss Rachel, which which is what Sandy was watching. How do you know, how do you know Sandy wasn't watching Driller Killer the whole time? Ah, uh, Joe, I'm afraid your 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 uh, adult sense of spatial dimension has failed you. <laughs> the, the the two screens were not side by side. They were in fact facing in opposite directions. Okay. Uh, Sandy was facing the Miss Rachel. Uh huh. And if he's facing Miss Rachel, he ain't facing anything else. He ain't facing else. nothing else. We love Miss Rachel. Uh, and uh, I was, I, I was, I had the laptop. Uh, this was during lunch, mm-hmm. lunchtime. I had the laptop on the kitchen counter behind him, physically behind him. Mm-hmm. No way, unless this kid pulls a Linda Blair in The Exorcist, there mm-hmm. is no way that okay. he could have uh, laid eyes upon Abel Ferrara's gritty 1970s masterpiece. The Driller Killer. The Driller Killer. I love that. Did you like my, speaking of Twitter, did you like my joke I just uh, tweeted? The one about the bit? Yes. Uh, my favorite thing about the Driller Killer is that it commits to the bit. I don't know. What does the audience think? Okay, now this. let's get right into the show, folks. Now, every week here on Weekend Bits. at Bergman's, we dress up in costume, but you can only see us in costume on Forever Dog Plus. Forever Dog Plus, only $5 a month. You get video episodes of Bergman's. You get your video episodes of Double Threat. You get ad-free Best Show. You get ad-free Office Hours. I mean, it is the truth. You get ad-free PTR, Podcast of the Ride, Just Between Us, whatever your, whatever your bag is, but you can watch us on video and folks you're gonna want to chime in for this video not because of our costumes which you know we'll get into in a second but because brett's son sandy is on the phone right now i'm looking at him he looks cute as hell and you gotta watch it on forever dog plus five dollars a month to see brett's beautiful son sandy and this was uh this was just uh uh before we started i i showed a little bit of sandy's costume for tonight I'll, i'll tell the i'll tell the uh the listeners, the viewers as well. Uh, Sandy is going to be uh, the amazing Sandy. He's dressing as a magician. Wow. We've got him a little tuxedo t-shirt. He's got a cape from the Magic Castle. Wow. Thank you very much. That's real. Wow. That's like, it's like been, there's like ceremonies that those capes go through yeah. and a wand from the Magic Castle. Yeah. So that's not just stuff you buy, you know, off the bargain bin at, at Target. That yeah. is like, they have been midnight rituals right that have been done on this wand and this cape um so he's got some legit you know kind of occultic artifacts that are making up this costume uh and then we got a fun little top hat a fun little top hat that's incredible that's incredible every magician needs a little top hat that is amazing um brett did you know that don't blame him it's huge the magic castle you know um aided and abetted the police during the black lives uh matters rallies and the cops could all camp out at the magic castle you uh that that requires no convincing from that that is that is uh the, the most the least surprising thing i've ever heard we've been twice uh, since okay so um look the magic castle yeah. is look this is like it's we got two options now. magicians are pro like not the amazing live in the world not and the you amazing. do your best right. and you speak your mind and you right. say the truth mm-hmm. uh but you live in the world or you just you get you get out of it and you go completely off. Those are your only options. Those are the options. Because everybody's it's a fucking interconnected game. Everybody's in on it. Yeah. Uh the okay. the, men, the magicians are helping the police. The magicians are helping the police. The Elon Musk owns Twitter. Right. Who cares? Um, uh, uh, I'm just kidding. I was gonna uh, um, I didn't tweet this yesterday, yeah. but I was gonna tweet um 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 
uh, oh no, uh, now all Elon Musk has to do is buy SNL and then he'll own the complete <laughs> joke pipeline. Yes, very nice. And by the way, you know, good? Lauren's coming in upon 50. He has crippling dementia. For all we know, he could Elon could be taking over the, the throne at Saturday Night Live, which would be cool. Um, Brett, we watched two films this week. Um, I'm very excited to talk with them about you. Also, yeah, we're both in costume, but really the, the key here is going to be Sandy. And, and the key is also going to be there is a trick-or-treater, Brett. I've seen this little trick-or-treater outside, and I said, during our show, you may trick-or-treat in our studio later during the show. So stick around in case you might want to see another trick-or-treater. Come to the studio. Um, but first, Brett, I think it's Joe, time. That wasn't, yeah. Joe, that wasn't a trick-or-treater. That was Guillermo del Toro uh, <laughs> fresh off his latest uh, Pitching Cabinet of Curiosities. At, at, at Ann oh, Waffles. Yeah. So we're next – well, I don't want to tell you where we are. We're next to Ann Waffles in North you Hollywood. You can literally Google it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, if you Google our uh, name. But, be so cool. We're, we're next to Ann Waffles in North Hollywood. Guillermo del Toro. During spooky season, tweets out best waffles I ever had. You got to go to End Waffles. I mean, Brett, we were we were we were a hundred yards away from the from the from the auteur himself, the the master of ceremonies. Yeah, and it, it, sadly, it was a kind of tweet where it was like he's not coming back anytime soon. Like no, he, you know he what I mean? Like it wasn't no. like this is my new spot. It was more like no. I'm gonna do these guys a solid because yeah. I'm never. I, I'm there's no way I'm ever. He was just like in between meetings and, you know, and had to stop off and was like, you know what? Those were amazing waffles. Let me do these guys a solid. That being said, I, yeah. I am thinking about just like permanently camping out um, near Ann Waffles um, mm -hmm. so I can pitch Guillermo del Toro on um, one of six horror movie ideas i have i love we'll it see. that would be great yeah. yeah i'm sure he just ordered like three platters of like the nashville chicken and waffles but then he like didn't want to pay so he's like I'll, I'll tweet i'll tweet you guys are just give me off the hook um yeah brett on this podcast we talk about films we talk about an art house movie we talk about a mainstream movie we compare them we put one in the can and we put one that's in the what trash we do can and it's what we do it's halloween but we also start the show off with a little segment and today we're doing a very spooky segment lights <gasps> Fog. Fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. Oh my gosh! Look at that. Look at that. Uh, it's That's a really good. Segment. That's really good. It's the Horror Oscars. Pacha. Brian, play the Horror Oscars theme. Horror Oscars theme in post. Folks, welcome to a new segment we're doing. It's the first annual Horror Oscars. During the Oscars, horror gets gypped. I think was Get Out nominated for Best Picture. You know, besides that, the, yeah, they, but it felt like you know, yeah, it, it felt was just like a fucking, a, it was a fucking fuck you nomination. It's always a little. They throw you a little bone. No, uh, right. you know, I mean, like, what is really? I mean, Rosemary's Baby um, did well, right? Right. So like um, every once in a blue moon, very horror, rarely, you know, yeah. it's relegated to a genre film, which means no one ever has to care about it. the only kinds of movies that can get nominated for nonsense. Oscars are dramas. Comedy complains about it. Sci-fi complains about it. Horror complains about it. And maybe nowadays with their insistence on ratings or the changing whatevers of Hollywood, you'll see an arrival in there. You'll see your get outs. But folks, 
we have how many years of the Oscars, Brett? 50, 60, 70 see, years of the that's Oscars. That's a good point about yeah. Arrival, though, mm-hmm. is that you can't have, like, if you have, like, genre fun, like, if you're having fun with the genre, then they don't want to have anything no, to do no, with you. If You've got to have right. no fun with your genre if you're going to do genre. Correct. Except, of course, like, very rare exceptions like Get Out, Rosemary's Baby, et cetera. Correct. It has to be, like, the best movie of all time or just, you know, yeah. or, or just, like, a, a drama or, or, like, a fancy drama. And Arrival's a good movie. But um, uh, it only, yeah. sorry, real quick, uh, yeah. Rosemary's Baby only won Best Supporting Actress for Ruth Gordon. Well-deserved. Um, Well-deserved. It was also nominated for Best Screenplay. So really, it got it got totally snubbed. Never mind. All right. Yeah. yeah. Oscars yeah. suck. Oscar, Oscars suck. We'll cover it in more, more as we get more towards the Oscars. But this is the horror Oscars. It's Halloween night. Boo, trick or treat. And we're going back in time to right some wrongs, Brett. We <clears throat> have, on this podcast, created a horror Oscars. It's the Oscars just for horror. And I want to go back in what time. What a great idea. Thank you. I want to go back in time. To a year that we talked about a lot this month, 1996, okay? This is a year, we've watched a lot of 90s horror films this year, and this year, I want to go back to 1996, scrap all the bullshit that won the regular Oscars. I didn't even look it up. Fuck it. This is the horror Oscars. Brett, I'm going to read through to you the horror yeah. films that were released in 1996. I can't wait. The year of the Atlanta Olympic bombing, a huge year right. for, for me as a young, uh, as a young Georgian boy. Watching the Olympics, we were so glad the Olympics came to Atlanta. They chose Atlanta. Can you believe it? Mm-hmm. Our little New South mm-hmm. metropolis. Mm-hmm. How'd that go? And then Eric Robert Rudolph tried to blow the damn thing tried up and then went to hiding in the mountains and then get caught for 20 years. Yeah. Meanwhile, they pin it on old, old poor uh, yeah. uh, Richard Jewell. Yeah, that was the last time um, the Olympics were exciting, though, so, so props. So, so 1996... You know. Folks, I'm going to rattle off some hard titles that year, and then I'm going to whittle it down to five. But just to give you the the milieu, just to give you what was going on in 1996 in the horror landscape, I'm going to walk you through some of these bad boys. Brett, we watched The Craft, okay? The Craft came out in 1996, uh. so that can be the anchor here as we go through these. Some other ones. Nakata's Precursor to the Ring, which he makes in 1998. Don't mm-hmm. Look Up came out in 1996. Peter Jackson's The Frighteners. Came out okay. in 1996 with Michael J. Fox. Bad Moon, cult classic werewolf film some guys mm-hmm. love, gals love. The uh, Bad Moon came out. Thinner, it's a based on a Stephen King book oh, sure, story. Sure, when I read the Wikipedia description today, it just had the word Romani too many times for me. Not going to get nominated for Yikes. Best Picture. Yikes. Um, Hellraiser Bloodline came out this year. That's the fourth entry in the uh, despicable okay, yeah. Hellraiser franchise. No, no. The first two are amazing. Kind of um, falling off at that point. Yeah. Very falling off at this point. We had the uh, uh, George Clooney's uh, From Dusk Till Dawn. From Dusk Till Dawn. Okay. We had Wes Craven's Scream, Brett. We had Wes Craven's Scream. It's a behemoth. It's a titan. Yeah. Who's going to knock it off? I mean, that one's going to the final round. We can just say it right now. There's no secrets there. I mean, can we put um, Can we put last week's um, uh, winner in there? A- absolutely. Uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau. Island of Dr. Moreau. List. Yes. Children of the Corn 4 came out in 96. Sure. Tr- Tremors 2, straight to video on demand, came out. Julia Roberts and John Malkovich starred in Mary Riley, which came out in 1996. Oh, right, about the Frankenstein, uh, the Frankenstein story from the perspective of uh, his um, person who worked in his house, Mary yeah, Riley. Not, not going to make it to the finals. Uh, Leopard- Wait, did I say Frankenstein? I'm so sorry. They're probably killing me in the chat right now. Jekyll and Hyde, I believe. Jekyll right? and Hyde. Jekyll, Jekyll and Hyde. Hyde. It's a yes. Jekyll and Hyde I'm story. I'm so sorry. That's all right. That would be so funny if Frankenstein's monster had a, um, had a uh, secretary. 
a uh, maid around the house. Um, um, the fourth Leprechauns film, Leprechauns in Space, came out in 1996. Shout out! Well, to so him. we are like we are like at the third and fourth of a lot of franchises. Then yeah. uh, a lot I, of franchises are really still milking it. Yep, yep. A lot. We, yeah. Tim Burton's Mars Attacks came out in 1996. Oh, and I know it's a little more sci-fi than horror, but there's enough horror elements in there for me to give it uh, an, a nom. You know, it's one of those ones we are like, okay, you know, that one, I'm, that one could, that one's a. a, a Available for nomination. Likewise, Escape from L.A. Not a horror movie. Uh, John yeah. Carpenter film. Um, Escape from L.A. came out in 1996. Uh, two more. Oh, just one more. And then there was a remake of uh, Diabolique, the French film with uh, That's right. Sharon Stone yeah. and Kathy Bates and, and Chaz Palminteri. So love Chaz. I mean, that's quite the Brett, just to kind of just to kind of go for it. Here's things that are making the final cut this year, the horror Oscars. And, and, yeah, and what chat, are we doing? We're doing, are we talking best picture? Best are we picture. talking acting? We're doing best, best picture. picture. Okay, best picture. Yeah, yeah let's, let's cut to the chase. I just want to cut. Right, we're doing best picture. Um, in the chat, Brian, let me know if anyone's like banging the doors down. But the craft and scream are going in. Craft and scream. And by the way, folks, on the horror Oscars, we're doing five. This isn't your bullshit 2020 <laughs> 10 film oscar nonsense where just any old movie can can make it in back to the days when there were five when the oscars meant something we i'm brett i'm putting the craft and i'm putting scream i have no disagreements there. there and can i actually say real quick and i hope this doesn't complicate anything no much like the regular oscars just like will throw a sort of little bone in a patronizing way to horror can we include um, 1996 uh, Best Picture winner Braveheart in in the horror Oscars just to see it get thumped by uh, yes. by a horror movie? Yes. Okay. Braveheart okay. is nominated for a horror Oscar this year. Right. So that's three. So we Good have luck, two, Braveheart. We have two more slots. I mean, look, I, personally, I'm looking at my list just, just to say them. You know, Island of Dr. Moreau is, is in the canon. Okay, you know it, it's very, very good. Mars Attacks is that's awesome. Winning, that's winning a that's winning a, a horror spirit award. That's winning a IFC. Okay, horror that's spirit winning award. the. I don't know if it's the horror Golden Globe for comedy in a musical. That yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> we have a chat vote for Mars Attacks. Okay, uh, guys, Mars Attacks is is awesome. Let's go ahead and throw that in there. Maybe Tim Burton's last they do, good film. You know what? Yeah. Uh, they do enough. There's enough like like campy violence in it that I think it that I think uh, qualifies it as as sci-fi slash horror. I, I, and obviously. I, I agree, Brett. Okay, so like bad moonheads are gonna like be mad at me. The frighteners, I don't know. I'm gonna I'm gonna say I I want to put Don't Look Up, the Nakata film, is awesome and scary, and it and it's you know it's our international entry, and I think we should show respect to to the to all the horror around the world. And I really want to put Don't Look Up as our five. So that would mean that ah! our five nominees for the 1996 Horror Oscars, and we can change it, but. As it stands, would be Scream, The Craft, Don't Look Up, Mars Attacks, and Braveheart. Braveheart. I mean, <laughs> but I feel bad about From Dusk Till Dawn not not making it. Um, no, that gets a, that get that would definitely get a screenplay nom. That would right. get um, that might get a um, best supporting actress nom for Salma. For Sal for know. Salma, I, I I know. I mean, you know, Braveheart's knocking it out. Um. Let's um let's just lock it in. Sorry from Dusk Till Dawn, which is a good movie. Um, but isn't my favorite even like no. a Robert Rodriguez movie. I mean, look, people fucking love it. And it's like a good vampire thing and it has lots of fun stuff in it. But it's our podcast. So here's the nominees for the nineteen ninety six. And I'm glad I think I think uh Frighteners I think the the there there seems to have been a sort of rush to like rediscover the Frighteners in the last couple of years. Right. Uh, 
much I like in theory. Right. Um, but, uh, right. I don't know. I, I, I wasn't crazy about the Frighteners. Um, it's got some very cool individual elements. Um, I, uh, I'm just not really, I've never been in on that, like that early horror era, Peter Jackman stuff. It's like, so it just doesn't feel like it's for me. There's something very, it's always like very kind of silly, Right. Um, but never in a way that like is interesting to me. I'm being attacked. I know. Sandy is now attacking Brett. Ah! Brett, I'm inclined to agree. That being said, ah! I haven't watched The Frighteners since like Lord of the Rings came out when I was young and I was like, Oh, I gotta watch everything this guy ever made, and then it was like a mixed bag of, of whatever's. All right, but folks, our nominees this year for the nineteen ninety six horror Oscars, The Craft, Scream, Mars Attacks, Braveheart, and Don't Look Up. And, you know, Brett, it's a good five, but I'm going to go ahead and put my vote in. And it's a no-nonsense, obvious vote for for Giuseppe here. Folks, my best picture winner vote is for Scream. Duh. Scream is the truth. Scream is the best. Scream is an A+. Scream's a five out of five. Scream 2's a five out of five. Scream 3 and 4 are amazing. Scream 5 is dog shit. See you on Scream 6, everybody. Brett, what are you voting for this year? Don't say Braveheart. You got Braveheart, Mars Attacks, Scream, The Craft, and Don't Look Up. Uh, chat, I want to hear what you guys are thinking. I mean, Brett, if uh, I'm, where if are I'm, you if I'm, in, if I'm in Vegas, if I'm betting on this, I'm betting Scream all the way. Uh, it's the best I think movie. that is the the clear winner. If I'm voting, you are if voting. I'm in the you're, horror you're in the Academy, horror academy. I have a yes. vote. Um, and I got my screeners and I watched everything. And I, much like on this show, it's very honest. So what's the... Forget all the hype. Forget all the narratives. Forget, wow. you know, oh, Scream is inventing meta horror Scream for a new generation, whatever. Forget is. all that. Just which movie is the best movie, Scream. the best horror movie of the year? Yeah. Um, Braveheart. I'm still going. I'm still going with Scream. It's, yeah, it's Scream, all, right, it's yeah, scream yeah, all the way. It's Scream with a bullet. And that is a, I apologize to the craft. I love the craft. Me too. It's but, in the canon. Uh, scream, scream is a horror. It, like, I mean, Scream is, um, is a uh, pulp fiction for 90s horror it's you know it i mean it's the movie the movie that launched a thousand imitators it's as good you as know it it's um and but it but at the same time it still survives that you know that that uh you know it, it survives that 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 um position and still may it still stands up you know it's like i think oh. sometimes when a movie inspires all these imitators people get exposed to the imitators and then when they see the original Absolutely. it's like oh i've seen this a hundred times but with scream it still it still holds up it transcends all of its attempts at imitation um and you know kind of a rocky ride through the sequels up and ups and downs like i, most I love them all franchises i love um, them all except five yeah i'm always down to watch a scream movie they're always good except five always down to watch a scream movie no shade um, Jack Quaid, shout i out. just think when you get in the um I think meta stuff is fun for one movie. I think when you get in the, when you set a like expectation that there's going to be some meta angle, it's hard. Uh, I think you start to run yourself in circles a little bit and becomes a little bit of a gimmick. Um, that's why it's always, you know, better, best to sometimes, you know, save it for the second wow, one. Save I think it for the thing like Texas. Brian's playing you off. Brian, I, I think Brian's playing us off. I think he's, he's, this is the horror Oscars and you're getting played off. He's pissed. Wait, wait. <laughs> I'm not. I <laughs> yeah. refuse. No, you're getting played off. Refuse. Uh, here's one thing I'll say about the music. I hate it every time it comes in, <laughs> but when people like 
make a stand about like oh, I'm not leaving. I've got that to is say the worst. I turn I do a 180. I start rooting for the music. Me too. Every I'm like get off. Every get off the stage. Literally same every single time. Folks, thank you for joining us on the first annual Horror Oscar. Congratulations, Scream. We'll see you at the Vanity Fair. Congratulations to Scream. Let's get crazy. I'm gonna smoke crack with you at the after party. All right. Let's throw a. a uh, uh, odor, uh, uh, hors d'oeuvres at Mel Gibson at the after party. Hi everybody, Tim Heidecker here. We have a brand new Office Hours that just came out of the oven. We've got legendary psych rocker Ty Siegel. And Doug is back from down under. G'day. G'day. And his mommy came with him. Mommy and Gary Lusenhop are here too. Alicia let me know that she finished the White Album, has thoughts on that. So much more on this legendary episode of Office Hours. Find us on your podcast app of choice or watch us on YouTube at youtube.com slash office hours live. Who are the animals because I don't smell them? Folks, we are, uh, thank you very much for the horror Oscars, but baby, we have a decision to make. And Brett, I don't want to put it lightly. It's going to be a rough one because we have two great movies mm. on our on our, on our Two great movies. Here. We have Abel Ferrara's 1979 Grunge House, Grindhouse uh, uh, cl- classic, uh, The Driller Killer, and we have 1992's Candyman. Brett, where do you, you're not here, but where, Brian, actually, I'll pick, you pick today. I'm here, baby, I'm here. Oh, I'm hey, here. Brett, hey, babe. All right, Brett, I'm where here. would you like I'm to start today? Little... Would you like to start with The Driller Killer or The Candyman? Wait, where's my hook? Or Candyman. Or Driller Killer. Or or Driller Killer. Yeah, what do you want to start with today? I, to be honest, I think this is of, uh, of, the whole month, yeah. I think this is the going to be the toughest. Wow, uh, I I loved. I, you're these not wrong. Both, I wow. loved them. Wow, uh, let's. Why don't we start with Driller Killer? Okay, we're going to start with Driller Killer now, folks. It's going to be yeah. a game of inches. You know, you know, like when there's a, a you know, like a game one of the World Series, right? It's Thank like you. literally like it's going to come down to one. You miss one pitch, right? And you're going to lose the game, right? You That's miss right. one pitch. That's right. That's right. That's what that's what today is. Um, uh, one of these movies is going to have to be perfect. The other one is going to be close to perfect, but that being close to perfect is what's going to is what's going to doom it. I think. I don't think Brett's wrong. I don't think Brett's wrong, folks. Excited to hear what the chat's thinking uh, is going to be the winner here. But first, let's get into these films a little tiny bit. Um, Brett, can you, do you have a, a little a uh, little information we could learn a little bit about Driller Killer? Absolutely. Can, can you believe Brian played me off? I no, that was so funny. Re- reeling, and it wasn't. See, the, the worst part was. The reason why it hurts is I knew I knew I was floundering. I knew I was I knew I was like drowning. I wasn't fine. There was a word I couldn't find, which is kills. You know, it just like kills, you know, uh, the sentence. And so uh, nothing scarier than self-realization. It, no, it's, yeah, it's yeah. the it's the, the truth of it, you know, is what is what really hurts. Um Oh my God! Can you imagine? I don't think that was his intention. I think it was just a funny little bit. Now, Brett, do you know I actually I went. Th- if I ever get yeah, played, man. if I ever get on stage for an award and they're playing me off, I'm I'm going full Jackson Maine and just pissing myself on stage. I'm just I'm gonna as a sort of silent protest. You'd have to do something go, to win go an like, award. Oh, no, though. here's the music. You know, yeah. I'm gonna just like what award? What award do you myself. think you're winning in this scenario? Oh, uh, like an. AARP uh, Good Job Senior Award. <laughs> AARP Most Seniors Hit with a Car Award. 
Um, uh, AARP, um, you know, uh, uh, award um, achievement in podcasting. <laughs> Um, that's a vote of confidence for Forever Dog, though. Let's keep this thing going another 20, 30 years, That'd be baby. good. We stand the AARP. Um, all right, Brett, take us a little history, a little ride down memory lane. Tell us about The Driller Killer. All right. So uh, The Driller Killer came out in 1979, which I was actually surprised by because it has, you know, it, it, it feels very 70s. Much like A Weekend at Bernie's feels so 80s, but with 1989, mm-hmm. Driller Killer similarly uh, – feels very very 70s to me very taxi driver era but it's coming at the very end of the decade which i think there's always something about those end of decade movies their ability to see the whole decade uh the arc of the entire decade and thus kind of epitomize them even as even as the decade is about to end um it was uh abel ferrara's uh first like feature length movie more or less he had done some uh indie shorts uh he's obviously coming up in the new york downtown scene uh, which was popping off at that point, punk rock, baby, uh, Basquiat, maybe a few years before Basquiat, but the art scene is blowing up. The music scene's blowing up. Uh, it's gritty as ever. You know, it's old, old New York uh, before H&M came in. This was shot around Union Square, Joe, as a New Yorker must blow your mind. This is like in and around Union Square, yeah, probably which I was like just in and around. Union Square was literally when room, I was right? in New York for Double Threat. That was like, oh, I can get all my errands done <laughs> yeah, in, exactly. around Union Square. Right. <laughs> was, was my was what it, it symbolizes yeah. to me now of like, oh, there's a CVS and, and like, a wine And a Capital store. One Cafe now right next to the movie. And a theater. Capital One. Oh, yeah. my God. You know, I, I actually went into a Capital One Cafe one time in Philadelphia. I did not realize it because they <laughs> the, the backside of it, they kind of disguise it. Uh-huh. And so I got in, I ordered my coffee. And not until I sat down, was like I was like, am I at a fucking Capital One Cafe <laughs> right now? <laughs> Okay, great. But I needed uh, to yeah. kill like 30 minutes. I didn't order my coffee. So I sat there at a Capital One Cafe at a window seat. Jesus Christ. Talk about public humiliation. A window seat at a Capital One Cafe. How much was the cup? It was reasonably priced. It was reasonably, yeah. Um, we, we, we lo- yeah. The, how was the coffee? Yeah. Um, it was it's not bad. <laughs> I literally would not have known it was a Capital One Cafe. Um, uh, one second. Yeah. Hold on. I'm no, going to be back in one second. That's totally literally, one second. Union Square, uh, you got the Whole Foods, you got the Best Buy. Um, List know, it all. I used to live on 14th Street when I went to NYU um, and uh, spent a lot of time in Union Square. Okay, Brett's back. So, All right. So, um, uh, so yeah, so Abel Ferrari had worked in indie films. He had also uh, worked in uh, porn a little bit in kind of the, like, the, you know, this is, you know, very much like Deep Throat era in New York where porn is going mainstream and they're selling out Times Square theaters. And, you know, Norman Mailer would show up and be like, oh, I'll, uh, you know, I have thoughts about the, you know, blowjobs on, you know, and they would uh, everything was taken very seriously. Uh, but porn was going mainstream. Um, and so uh, Ferrar was working in porn. He's working in Grindhouse. Uh, and then he makes um, uh, Driller Killers his first um, real go at a feature film. Uh, he also stars in it. He is the the eponymous driller killer. Um, it was written by his uh, often uh, collaborator, off, um, frequent frequent collaborator, uh, Nicholas St. John. Nicholas St. John. Um, and really, it's it's you know it's the template of of Ferrara's whole aesthetic in in in, in the first movie there. Uh, and I think you know the only difference is sort of the degree to which he's taking his aesthetic seriously versus having sort of some campy fun with it is sort of the you know the the up and down of of, of his career um 
but this certainly leads right into he didn't miss 45 uh, a couple years uh, um, uh, uh, later. Uh, miss 45 is, um, you know, uh, definitely worth watching if you haven't seen uh, content warning uh, rape, two rapes very early on in the movie. Uh, but then it's a classic sort of grindhouse like revenge movie right. from then on uh, where uh, this um, woman who's who's basically doesn't speak um, uh, takes revenge against her rapists and and uh, um, and it's a uh, you know it's very grindhouse but much like driller killer uh, there's a lot the, the grindhouseness of it is almost like I almost feel like a mirage in order to like in order to do some more interesting things like the grindhouse thing just is sort of to sell it to like market it to have a sort of uh, a, a sort of structure, uh, but uh, for Abel Ferrara is always interested, um, you know, in doing some deeper things with the genres. Of course, he also made Bad Lieutenant, maybe his most famous movie with Harvey Keitel. I love that movie. Um, uh, he made. He's still working. He made a movie uh, last year. I think I've told you about this. Zeros and Ones with Ethan Hawke, uh, where like the Va- Vatican, uh, the Vatican gets blown up or something. Like it's it has the most insane plot. His, the his, Vatican yeah. gets like blown up. It's literally like uh, the. I have to read the log line for you here. If if VOD was still a thing, which I guess kind of it is streaming, but like I feel like yeah. he he's just like his past like seven films are just like the funniest assortment of VOD seeming yes. sort of yes. schlocky. Well, that's what that came out awesome. of, you know, straight straight to VHS, um, and the straight to the, the sort of straight to VHSness of it uh, of Driller Killer got him in trouble, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but, uh, yeah, zeros and ones, I don't know. It's post-apocalyptic. The Vatican blows up. Um, great. Ethan Hawke's in it. Go, go watch it. It's probably not great, but like, what else are you going to do? Go watch zeros and ones. Watch. Um, so, uh, it was shot, uh, in, um, Ferrara's apartment. You know, this Mm. is like super low budget indie filmmaking at its best shot on 16 millimeter. Let me pick this little boy up. He's getting a little cranky. Come back here. Come back. Come on. Come on. Come on. Talking about the driller killer. Come here, buddy. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it's shot on location, you know, this is just classic. This is what we talked about when, like, with Aronofsky making pie. This is just good old school New York independent downtown filmmaking at its finest. Um, you know, and Ferrara is such a great figure to, you know, to remember and, like, to to include in the pantheon of New York directors, you know? He's, like, Martin Scorsese's, like, scuzzy, you know, cousin, you know, who's, like, who's, you know, he's a little dirtier, he's a little nastier, you know, he gets down in the muck a little bit more, but God bless him for it, because uh, he made some really interesting movies, uh, Driller Killer certainly is one of them, uh, so that's some background, but I would love to hear, Joe, your thoughts on, uh, on Driller Killer. Yeah, so basic. Um, so, so yeah. Driller Killer follows a, uh, a starving and tortured artist who lives with his girlfriend and another woman who he is with, sleep with, or they sleep or whatever. She lives there. Sort of uh, a loose menage going uh, on. It's a, lo- sort of a loose menage. And he yeah. is um, trying to paint a masterpiece that he's selling, and he gets frustrated, and in his frustration, and in the stress as it boils all over him, and the and the griminess of his life washes over him, he decides to buy a drill with a with a mobile drill pack and drill bums to death is is what he does. Um, there's some fun kills in the movie, really fun kills. It's it's a fun weapon. Um, to have it's like a silly weapon to have but it's also kind of fun like how does he he like drills guy like but the, i guess my it doesn't matter it's still fun and great but like imagine trying to kill a guy with a drill i feel like you wouldn't get too far right brian like 
unless you have a really sharp drill piece. I feel like all my drill pieces, you just sort of like twist the guy's clothes around in a funny way until they kind of fly off. But um, but uh, he he drills guys to death, and um, that's sort of his release. Um, and it all comes to a to a terrible end. So um, what I loved about the movie was, I mean, like every you know, like anybody else would. I loved sort of the aesthetic quality. I loved the editing that was sort of like jarring and sort of flashed his thoughts and such. And there's some of that flashing in Candyman too. But there's like a sort of that jarry, gritty, docu sort of vibe. Yeah. Low budget griminess. Tons of inserted scenes of like the punk scene at that time. Like tons of he lives above or spends time at you know, the Iggy Pop derivatives of New York at that time, right, Brett? Like, and we, yeah. this movie features all these weirdo punk bands and grunge bands and that whole. Well, and for scene. the for the for the true music heads out there, we're starting to get into no wave when this uh, movie is made. So we're starting to get into sort of like post punk a little bit. Uh, the band The Roosters is kind of on the edge of punk into no wave. Uh, but yeah, the music scene is happening, and Ferrara is like. Maybe to the movie's uh, um, detriment a little bit. He's like super into the music scene that's I, going on. I have to agree. Like, I and I think part of it is like you know, arrest me. That's just like not my scene. Like, God bless. Like, I respect. Everything. Yeah. But like, it's just like not something I particularly care about. Like, when in PCU, when uh, Bill Clinton played um, Bill Clinton. Do you remember George Clinton? <laughs> You know what I mean? Sorry, sorry. Excuse me. Of course. Uh, when, I mean, uh, I wish mistake, like, you know, now, he, now, he really, he really rocked that sack. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Sorry. Um, when, when, when George Clinton came, like I loved that. But in this movie, there's a lot of the music, and I just don't particularly like care or like have the knowledge base you do for the type of music. So it was too much for me. But well, here's the thing cool, too that would have like, been too much so me, yeah. easy, and he did it. He finally did it on the last. So there's all these um, extended shots of the band. The band lives under the killer and is like, and it's really funny because the killer is like annoyed because the band is so loud all the time. And so um, there is uh, uh, one, um, so there's all these like scenes of the band just rehearsing, like extended rehearsal scenes. And they're very cool in the way that like deleted scenes are cool. They're very cool as like, oh, (laughs) there's something sort of like, fun and raw and improvised about this. Some uh-huh. of it feels sort of husbands-esque, like Cassavetes-esque yeah. and improvisation. Um, but the story, the, there's no, the story just grinds to a halt while they do these like band rehearsal scenes. Mm. Um, and for a very tight genre movie, that's a lot of dead air. Yeah. Um, and the whole it's time I cool. was like, I was like, but, why yeah. isn't he just have the band's music going and then do a montage of what the driller killer is doing. And then suddenly the two things are combined. And I was like, for a while, I was like, am I being too like hacky? Is that too hacky? But then he does it on the last, the last scene where the band's rehearsing. You see a driller killer like getting ready for his final big kill. Mm-hmm. And it's great. Mm-hmm. It works phenomenally. Mm-hmm. So I think the movie could have saved a little bit of dead air. Yeah. And it would have added like a real an extra air of sort of doom and gloom to um to the driller killers like nighttime you know roaming the streets killing people the only thing i could think is that the punk band is meant to somewhat stand in like opposition to the driller killer who's like this painter this like he's been there forever 
and then the punks are like moving into the neighborhood but like but yeah. also the music is kind of what drives him crazy and the music kind of gets him to do these things so i, I thought it would have been but so he also used to like love the scene he also used to like yeah love that scene so like I, yeah i'm actually really happy to hear you say this because i my one thing about driller killer i was like i'm on the outs of this scene so i don't appreciate the like you know his um factory his warhol little team of right. punk people and i you know brett's gonna get it and i and i'm just a little on the outs but i I'm, love the scene i, 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 I agree, I agree and I'm, I'm still not feeling it as like a plot okay. uh, device because yeah. yeah because the movie literally just it's it's like it, it's it's it literally as though somebody intercut the driller killer with like with like behind the scenes footage about, right. of like of of the buzzcocks practicing or something so it's like it it's sounds like, cool it but is, in theory it's for yeah. us brett and me it yeah. didn't play a, we're not a, the buzzcocks suicide whatever take take your pick of the yeah um, um i yeah so i i dig the scene and the music and i was just as a cinematically it just it just kind of slows everything down and that might be the missed who knows that might be the missed pitch right there um but things that i liked i want to go back to the drill because you mentioned um I there's two really brilliant things that this movie does um, because it is this movie could have been so derivative and so forgotten because you're thinking about, you know, Taxi Driver came out three years earlier. This is a very, very Taxi Driver-esque movie. Um, uh, and not just Taxi Driver, but at this point in the 70s, the, Driller Killer is working with some very, very like, you know, uh, some tropes that had been used a lot throughout the seventies, the vigilante, like the urban vigilante, right. Most mm -hmm. notably in taxi driver, but that's something you see in a lot of grindhouse, a lot of exploitation movies mm -hmm. is like the urban vigilante who just like, can't New York is too fucking crime ridden and I can't take it anymore. And I'm going to put, put, put matters in my own hands. Right. This was a, basically a, a, a cliche at this point in, in, in movies. Um, and then um, also just sort of like urban decay in the city and like, you know, the end of the Carter years and everybody, everything is like, you know, too expensive and broken and the system doesn't work and blah, blah, blah. Um, and of course, I complained about that last week. You know, there was, you know, certainly some merit to that, but no reason that we had to like do a complete 180 and then um, and, uh, um, you know, usher in late stage capitalism via Reaganomics. But anyway, that's that's for another time. Um, so. Driller Killer could have been, I think, could have felt very derivative because it is working with these tired tropes. But the fact that it does two things, A, it it hides itself in genre. It uses the genre as kind of like a um, disguise where it's like it, it sort of you put your guard down. I mean, it's called the Driller Killer and and it like has you know real garish imagery that was used on it. like literally one of the posters I found that they were using in circulation is the scene where he drills that guy right through the forehead and like blood's that, like that was yeah. like on the poster right cool. so this like so he uses like the lurid aspects of the genre i think as like a disguise so your guard is kind of down so you're like oh this is just gonna be a fun gore fest and i can kind of relax you know you don't come in with the expectations that you're gonna see an art house movie but i think i would argue that's what you actually end up seeing uh and then the other thing is that uh and i you know i'm gonna say this joke now for the third time he, commits, he, to the bit. Commits, he commits to the, to the bit, bit. as in drill bit. Right. The drill, drill I thought it was going to be just like a MacGuffin, a kind of rant. That's just what he, he just found a drill on the street. And that's what he uses. The drill is really expertly 
um, developed as a metaphor for everything that's going on in his life. Because he becomes obsessed with the drill before he even gets it. He sees the commercial. And it's not like he, like, he almost didn't have murder on the mind. It's a, it's a great chicken or egg thing. The drill, I think, is what unlocks this whole, his whole, like, serial killer turn. Is he becomes obsessed with the drill. He sees a commercial. He sees it. He goes and stands outside the hardware store and looks at the drill through the window. It's almost a love story between the killer and the drill, the driller killer and his drill. And I think it is because there's so much that gets talked about in this movie of like, this guy is, he's like empty. He's got nothing. His relationships are fizzling. His career is fizzling. He has no more ideas. And all he's sort of animated by, whatever sort of creativity or passions animated him earlier on in his life are gone now. He's mean to the to his girlfriend. He's mean to his like art dealer. He's mean to everybody. He is just sort of a, a hollowed out husk of a former artist still tr- trying to find some last vestige of creativity inside him or purpose. The thing that animates him is when he goes out on the streets and he sees, you know, uh, 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 Travis Bickle-esque, he sees... Uh, crime and he sees poverty and he sees all these things that is what animates him and the drill i think the idea of a drill like boring into the middle of something of like cutting through to the middle of like literally like of like into somebody's brain just like much like the ending of pie right i mean the drill in pie is an attempt to sort of like essentially to lobotomize yourself to like take your brain out of the equation because uh, the brain is what is causing all of your problems and all of your anxieties and all of all of, it's like you're you know tortured by it um and so i think for him the drill becomes this way of just like of like all the abstractions of trying to be a successful artist and trying to build relationships all the hard work of being yeah. a human right. can suddenly be wiped away and i just go out at night and drill baby and yeah. then i wake up with a clean conscience and I like an and an, right. and and I'm like feel like a newborn, Just right? A the drill is like his way right. of of like making sense of the world again. Um, and it is and and it sounds like I'm I'm giving some bullshit like film studies lecture right no, now. No, no, this no, stuff no. is in the movie. Yeah. Like the movie cares about the drill and it cares about what the drill means. And I loved that. Yeah. I love when I get the best of both worlds. When I get uh, uh gore and camp and kitsch and dark comedy. And I get someone who cares about um, the visual language of their film, who cares about the devices, who is not just throwing shit in to throw shit in. Obviously, I with the band is another issue. I think the band is overdone. I think he just <laughs> right, liked the band. The band. We covered the band, yeah. <laughs> I think he just liked the Roosters a little bit too much. Um, but the drill and the Driller Killer should be in the fucking, um, uh, uh, um, you know, Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Museum. It should be like in the Smithsonian, the Drill and Driller Killer. What an what an incredible visual metaphor um, for the kind of anxieties of the late seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would actually, in addition to like Grindhouse and horror and exploitation films, I would put this movie. I was I was pleasantly surprised by this i would put this movie in the lineage of the paranoia movies of the 70s so your parallax views uh your invasion of the body snatchers remake with donald sutherland um that sort of watergate era filmmaking where suddenly like paranoia and conspiracy and all that was everywhere um this feels like a movie that is like taking that genre and then sort of personalizing it so that we're now in an era where like you know everyone is has lived through the kennedy assassination watergate and this and that and, and all the cia shit and mk ultra right they got conspiracies on you know uh and this is the the turn where like everybody's sort of individual life becomes permeated by a sense of paranoia 
and conspiracy of things plotting against you of being isolated of being um you know under attack under duress of being in this like hopeless situation um so it feels it has a lot of the tone of those paranoia movies but then very personalized it's not some big government conspiracy it's just one man trying to live his life in new york um but it has because of the times and the circumstances it feels like those paranoia movies i think mm-hmm. um so it's a movie that is rich with thematic texture mm-hmm. At the same time that it's doing some of the most bloody, gruesome grindhouse kills uh, that you're going to see in the late 70s. Uh, so I absolutely loved uh, The Driller Killer, uh, and it's going to be tough to beat. That wasn't um, just you that really picked up on that paranoia strain. I think Ferrara later makes a Body Snatchers remake himself. Is that true? He does. He does. That's like, right. You know, he like does. that, is, that third, is part and uh, parcel of it. And then the other strain that we've mentioned uh, and only nibbled around for the Driller Killer specifically, but it's obvious, of course, is the phallic nature of the drill and and his frustrated sexuality. So not only is he a frustrated artist and a frustrated tenant and a frustrated city dweller, of course, he's insanely frustrated sexually. There's a great tracking shot when it goes up his leg and the drill's just like hanging, you know, yeah. phallic like. And it's just, he's just standing there over it, yeah. feeling like he got his manhood back. And that's obvious from um, Ferrara's previous work in porn the scene at the time and uh, obviously we talked about yeah, giallo yeah. in the 70s and and everything that was coming out of horror um in italy in into the american film uh, culture in the 70s and then of course literally like brett's saying 79 turns into 80 and then for the next 10 years it's going to be all about sex and uh how bad it is and, and murdering people and and you know Halloween comes out in 1979, which is a different frustrated sexuality sort of manifest. And this one sort of manifests in a, a less in a, in a more chaotic, violent, um, even more violent than what Halloween. What do you yeah. think about the uh, the shower scene? Loved it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was great, too. There's yeah. there's a scene where going along with this theme. So he lives like we said, he lives with his girlfriend and his girlfriend's lover, essentially. So it's right. like a. Um, it's yeah, sort so of a menage a trois thing, but it only goes. It's like it's it's the, the girlfriend Carol is uh, fucking guys. fucking both uh, people, mm-hmm. and um, you know, uh, and so there's a scene where he is like you know in his like frustration, his dumb artistic male sort of frustration, um, and he's starting to flirt with these murderous fantasies that he's having, um, and it cuts to with him out on the couch, just being just all sweaty and gross on his couch. It cuts to um, Carol and the other woman, whose name I'm forgetting, in the shower. Um, and they are just having like really tender sex in the shower. Um, and on the one hand, it is, it's a very 1970s male gaze version of, of, um, of, uh, of two gay women having sex. Um, it's like the, it reminded me, I was like, this is what the term like sapphic was invented for, like a very sort of like male gaze, like version of, of gay women. Um, and so it's very like soft focus, two hot ladies banging and it's hot. Right. And very, but it's like, it feels like almost like, you know, literally like, like sort of, uh, it almost feels like we're in like an ancient, like Greek. Yeah. It's like like a shampoo commercial. commercial. It's a very, It, it has a very different tone than anything else in the movie. It's a very bizarre scene, but so there's, there's, it's sort of dated and male gazing in certain ways, but I was also like, Oh cool. Like two women just like having like really, what looks like really great sex and like, not like there's not really much of a deal made of it. And like, and look, I'm sure 
to be very blunt, you know, he, he's coming from porn. I'm sure there was just, the main motivation was just like, I got to get some TNA in this movie because uh. it's Grindhouse and people are going to expect it. Um, but what a kind of interesting version mm-hmm. of doing some TNA in a movie. Um, uh, and, and it feels like almost kind of subversive in a way um, that this is like, this is, this is like the sex, you know, cause I feel like all these movies, all these sort of Grindhouse movies, it was like, you're going to get some violence. And you're going to get some sex and, and some female nudity. Um, and this was probably not what a lot of the viewers of the movie like thought they were signing up for in terms of the sex component of it. So I feel like Ferrara is like doing like with a lot of the movie, the genre is sort of a disguise to get you in the theater. And then he's doing some very interesting things that, that transcend the genre. I think that's really apt. And it's that's well said. I love that scene. But, you know, it is male gazy like he's one thing I loved about it almost was it's. um aggressive male gaziness in the sense that he's just shooting their boobies and like nothing else for like a minute yeah <laughs> and they're yeah, like you know yeah and i just like find that almost um uh, almost charming and brett's right it is like a tender and sort of um odd scene it's not um like other um nudity in horror films but um he shoots I, it like I, porn I love, though he does he doesn't shoot it like porn, like nudity. yeah uh-huh. you know like a lot of times sex scenes in movies where you're trying to like i don't know shoot it sort of for character maybe i mean i'm giving you know movies way too much credit but like he just shoots it like porn yeah, basically it's good it, um, it, it reads um, yeah, other things i love i'm um, oh, sorry good yeah i kind of liked it overall but yeah i like it too other things i loved i loved how he kept um the he what he's painting in his sort of his like flop era painting is of a big buffalo and it has this eye this like very realistic looking eye and they keep like cutting <laughs> they keep cutting to like this buffalo's scary eye staring at him and him talking to it i loved that about it i thought that was great i loved that funny picture of the buffalo i thought the scene where yeah. the art guy comes in and is like this is the worst shit i've ever seen was so funny because like that was the you know best. it's one of those things yeah. like where you're like that that piece of art is like cool because it's a big buffalo, but like it kind of sucks. And then like, but do, do you think it's good? And then no, they know it sucks. Dude, the movie um, is funny. Yeah, the, movie the movie is, is very funny. funny. It's very, very very funny. Then when that scene of uh, Abel Ferrara just like housing that pizza on the floor of the apartment, that was disgusting. And just, like, he eats the entire pizza. It's so gross. I was like, I was like alternating between like laughing and like and and. He dry eats, like, heaving. Four it's so pieces disgusting. of like green pepper pizza in like a minute. It was the grossest. He's just like shoving in his mouth and just like chewing these like big wide circles. And, and it's, it's, lo- it's like the women are looking at him like, "What are you doing?" It's the grossest. Yeah, it's like we all mm-hmm. imagine if like you got a pizza to share with two people and one of them was just like shoving it all in his mouth like so aggressively. It is. It yeah. is the grossest eating scene since uh, we've seen saw in the mood for love. Um, when the noodles it's shop. worse than the uh, it's much murders. Worse. I'm gonna say it's worse than the murders. The way he eats that pizza is worse than. The and we got drill. some I'm great drill murders in this, folks. We got a drill, a guy getting drilled up to a, a um, he gets drilled to a door. A guy gets crucified, like nails in his hands, and then drilled in his head. We got a drill in the head. We get a drill at a bus stop. We get a bunch of stomach drills. I love the one when the nice, um, like uh, alcoholic bum or whatever, just standing there, and he's like. Hey man, what's up? And the guy's just holding a drill. Like, oh, nice drill, man. That's awesome. What are you gonna yeah, do yeah. with that? Like fix the house? And he gets drilled yeah. in the stomach. Great stuff. Lots of blood. And he keeps and like just... it's such a great scene too because the driller killer does a couple like you know sort of jabby things, and the guy the guy's like whoa whoa, whoa. hey brother, and then, but then like doesn't leave, and then it's like okay all right cool I thought I thought you were gonna kill me with that drill for a second. Also, um, one last thing on driller killer before we go, the, his landlord or his super 
who uh, he complains to about his loud punk rock playing neighbors gives him like a gift. The roosters. A gi- the roosters gives them a gives him a gift to be like, hey, I, if you don't like it, I'm sorry. Here's a gift for you. And he gives him a full skinned rabbit. And he's like, you know how yeah. to cook this? Takes the full skinned rabbit home, and then Abel Ferrara like cuts out the meat, and then he just takes a machete and just brutalizes what I can only imagine is a real dead rabbit's head many, many, many times mashing it with the machete. It was so vile. And it reminded me of when I was growing up. Um, fun story. Uh, on Easter, my grandfather and his cousin slash Paisan, Nicole, they would come over on Easter and they would have like two or three white rabbits in a box. And me and my cousin Caroline would like play with the rabbits and we'd like name them. And then Nicole and my grandfather would put the rabbits back in the box and they'd be like, all right, well, see you later. And then they'd go into the like little like shed and then they would like for dinner. We'd just like eat rabbit. And, you know, it took me a couple of years to be like, wait, this this is the rabbits we just played with. Um, but that's what it's like, you know, when, um, you know, when you're when your family is, um, you know, a bunch of uh, Italians. <laughs> Folks, it's time to turn our attention uh, to to Candyman um, Brian. Um, some some words on Driller Killer, and then give us some and lead us some with some words into Candyman. Oh wow, okay, Driller Killer. Real quick, I'll just say, uh, I mean, I I I see what you guys are saying about the music maybe being uh, distracting and kind of losing the focus of the film. I I loved those scenes. Uh, I I it was wild to me how much it was featured wild like it was like he was yeah. just finding an excuse to put guitar in every scene <laughs> like the one where he's the guy is uh getting his portrait done and he and he's still oh, shredding yeah. his guitar <laughs> yeah. throughout that which i which i guess is like partly to you know uh, uh leading um uh abel ferrar's character to into madness but um but man i loved it that sweet freaking 70s single coil guitar tone oh freaking wow how do you get that how do you get that nowadays love that they're, they're, okay they're trying to replicate it uh, every which way I, I and you just can't oh man wow you, you just can't get at that sound anymore oh hell yeah okay freaking All right. single coils i i think one of those guitars had like one single coil pickup on it come on <laughs> All right, sorry, right, we're getting sexy. into gear talk, but man, I, I just love the movie. I freaking loved it. I thought Abel Ferrara was, I, I loved his acting, man. I yeah. thought he, he's I, fun. He's I, such I a weirdo. Away. Yeah, he's he's so funny and like so committed to everything. It was it was just a blast. He was fucking great in that movie. Okay, well, actually, that's great. I mean, going into our final decision here, you can sort I, of... sorry, real quick, can I um say real quick? I wanted to uh, talk for just two minutes about the video nasties phenomenon, of which Driller Killer was an example. Um, just two seconds, real Perfect. quick. I'm gonna put Miss Rachel on real quick for Sandy. Here we <laughs> go. Right. Oh, weird. Miss Rachel's doing a shot for shot remake of the Driller Killer in this episode. <laughs> oh no. Oh no. That's such a it's that's violent. such a weird coincidence. Wow. Um uh, so this um Driller Killer was like infamous because it got on the list of so-called video nasties, which was this thing that went on in England where the VHS market, like in the early 80s, was kind of unregulated. And so there was a lot of movies, indie kind of movies like this, that were like slipping into mainstream distribution. Like you could get them, you know, very easily at a local store or rental store uh, because um, 
the VHS industry was unregulated. And so these little indie like horror movies and grindhouse movies were just like popping up at the corner store. And then suddenly, um, you know, everybody's, you know, parents are freaking out because their kid is like bringing home the driller killer or is bringing home, uh, you know, Herschel Gordon Lewis movie or a Jallo movie or something. And so of course, in typical um, fashion, uh, there's a huge, huge satanic panic esque, uh, response to it in England. Obviously, there's been responses to it in America as well, but uh, there was a mainly a response to it in England where um, uh, this this uh, group, uh, the uh, National Viewers and Listeners Association in the United Kingdom, came up with this term, video nasties, um, and they started putting putting together this list, almost this sort of McCarthy, you know, uh, era esque list of all of these movies that were video nasties, and they should be like banned from distribution, this and that. And they were able to successfully um, pursue prosecution, like cr- like criminal prosecution against like over seventy movies, and thus like um, I think some people who like illegally distributed them went to jail and then the movies themselves were essentially taken off the shelves in, in England. Um, and driller killer was one of the like 70 that was like prosecuted and like taken off the shelves. Um, there was, I wanted to quickly, um, uh, there's a couple, look, well, look, I don't think we have time for this, but if you look up video nasties, you will find an incredible, that's like your next viewing, you know, this is the way a lot yeah, of kids, that's I think the, we're, we gotta we're, watch all we're of approaching them. it. Yeah, it's like, oh, you guys made a list for us? That's so yeah, much more convenient. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Most disgusting um, movies of the 70s. You know, obviously getting your hands on them was hard, but that's where the underground VHS market kind of came into play. That's awesome. Um, yeah, so look up Video Nasties. There's one I really want to watch called Night of the Bloody Apes from 1972. Um, and it's so funny because it's a English language version of a Mexican horror film called Gomar the Human Gorilla in which a mad scientist transplants a, gr- a gorilla's heart into his dying son, yes. saving his life but transforming him into a monstrous creature who embarks on a murder spree before being brought to justice by a luchadora. That's a female uh, professional wrestler, that incredible. female wrestler. Incredible. So I want to watch Night of the Bloody Apes. So anybody yeah, knows how too. I can get my hands on it, I'll Google it. But if you have a, you know, if you know, if you have a link, send me a link to Night of the Bloody Apes. Uh, and it's like very campy. And so people were like, um, People have been like, why did this make like video nasties? It's just like very silly, very si- much sillier than the driller killer. And the reason it got on the video nasties is because it, it used during the transplant, the heart transplant scene, it like inexplicably used like real stock footage of an actual heart transplant. And it was like so jarring <laughs> that like that's that like medical, like literally medical footage of an actual heart transplant is what got it put on the video nasties uh, list. Um, and uh, um uh, which got probably some extra notoriety. So good for you, Night of the Bloody Apes. Wow. Uh, I can't wait to watch ah! that. Yay! Well, that was great. All those movies sound amazing. Let's definitely check out some video nasties. Um, uh, but, Brett, before we get to um, talking about Candyman, we have a trick-or-treater in the studio with us right now. What? And he is here, and he is saying trick-or-treat. Let's bring him in. Toro? Let's bring him in. It's Andy, not Guillermo it? del Toro. It's Andy. my little baby boy Enzo. Oh my goodness! And he is dressed Look like a Enzo. pumpkin. Look hey, at Enzo. Hey, Sandy, his little Enzo. That's your buddy. And he's dressed like a little pumpkin, everybody. Oh and you can gosh. only see him on Look Forever Dog Plus, five dollars a month. Hey, and baby. you can see my little baby. baby boy Enzo, dressed like a little pumpkin. Oh my gosh! Look at that little sweetheart. 
He is so cute, Joe. Oh, my God. He's my little guy. Oh, my God. I love him so much. He's my best friend. He sees himself on, you see yourself on the screen, You see yourself, Bubba? Or you see Sandman? Hi, Sandy. Wave, Sandy. Wave. Hey, Sandy. Wave. This is the first time Sandy wave. and Enzo are meeting. There's a wave. There's Hi. a wave. Hey, Sandy. Hey, Enzo. They're meeting. Oh, Oh, Enzo's little Enzo's little chin's quivering. This is their first, uh, this is their first meeting. Uh, meeting. They're friends now. Yeah. Hi. And Enzo's just like a cute little pumpkin. Oh, hey. my God. All right. Enzo, you Enzo, are thank an you absolute for doll. Now, Enzo's going to go Get hang out. Get that candy, Enzo. Enzo's going to go hang out with Uncle Brian in, in the engineer candy, room. candy bars, except nothing less. Yes, that's right. That's good. That's a good note from Uncle Brett. All right, it's say bye. Payday, baby. Say bye, Enzo. Get that we got, immune system working. We got to talk about Candyman. All right, bye, Enzo. Whoa. Uh, Brett, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the 1992 film Candyman? Which oh, I'd I'm be glad to. Uh, Candyman was based on a Clive Barker story. A Clive Barker, of course, no Clive Barker, yep. horror uh, icon, um, and also writer, short story writer, etc. Um, his story, though, was set, it had similar themes as Candyman um, in terms of, uh, you know, um, uh, urban decay and kind of urban segregation and things like that but it was set in liverpool um and so didn't have the same uh you know kind of american racial dynamics that Candyman uh has okay cool uh those are the the um that's the doing of the uh director bernard rose uh who um i don't think gets enough credit i mean he really was a, a really key sort of creative uh force in getting the, the tone and the, and the sort of themes of this movie in place. Um, and it's a very, I mean, what a, what a, what a, a really smart, challenging uh, horror movie, um, you know, that is, is, is saying some really, really interesting things, um, but is still going to put butts in seats. Um, and I think I want to talk about that tightrope act a little bit, because I don't know if I've ever seen a, a movie that does a mainstream movie, a studio horror movie that does that tightrope act better of saying some really interesting things um, about history and about, uh, race and about America, but never like n it's still doing all the big horror beats and it's still putting butts in seats. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll talk about that a little, a little bit more later. But uh, so uh, Bernard Rose um, had, I think, sort of uh, was familiar with like he really felt like Chicago was the place for this. Um, he was kind of fascinated by the history and the dynamics of Chicago. I mean, much like any American city you think of, you know, what Robert Moses did in New York, or you think of all the kind of white flight cities like Atlanta, where I'm from, uh, Chicago, of course, you know, the, the, the history of the city and the way it evolved and the way the neighborhoods evolved uh, uh, is has to do with race first and foremost. Um, and so um, Bernard Rose was fascinated by this. He said, this is the perfect place to put um, Candyman um, in particular, because, um, you know, a lot of the, um, uh, sort of poorer, neglected areas like the Cabrini Green Housing Project um, are not like on the other side of town from kind of rich white areas. They're sort of like in the midst of them. So everything is kind of like segmented off but sort of close to each other. So he liked Cabrini Green as the setting of this because he could also then have the scene in Virginia Madsen's like super nice apartment that she shares with her, with her professor boyfriend where she's literally like looking down upon C Cabrini Green from this like high rise luxury apartment. So it had all the dynamics that he, that he um, wanted to play with. Um, and so he, he relocated Candyman from Liverpool um, to Chicago. And uh, 
Eddie Murphy was actually the first choice uh, to play Candyman, uh, which would have been, you know, uh, I think a wildly different uh, movie. Um, uh, you know, Eddie, Eddie Murphy is certainly capable of drama, but at yeah. this point, like early 90s, you know, Vampire in Brooklyn kind of era, I don't know right. if that's really what he would have brought to the uh, to the role. I'm I sure think it would have been di- it out, but different. I hear you. I, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, what did you say? You would have liked. Well, that? I, no, I said like I'm sure he's a great actor. I'm sure he would have figured no, it out. He, but he, but he, I know I know exactly what yeah. you mean. It's a, it's a different vibe. There's just certain physical tools that Tony Todd brings to it that Eddie Murphy doesn't have access so to. Cool there's, there's, you can't head. imagine it without Tony Todd. I mean, he's so I love him. Um, and this was not an accident. Tony Todd, um, much like you know, we talked about how Vin Diesel got obsessed with his character in Fast and the Furious, right? Yes. He took genres seriously. He's yeah. he's doing he's taking trips to Cuba. He's going to underground street racing, right? <laughs> Tony Todd, very similar. He um, this is a horror genre movie. You know, I think a lot of actors would have just come in and taken the paycheck. Um, but Tony Todd campaigned for this role. He said, "You can sting me with as many bees as you want," and he got stung by a lot of bees. So, uh, yeah, he I said, was wondering am, that they actually had those bees all over. He got him. stung. There's some number. I think he got stung like over 200 times. Oh my god! Movie, I, which obviously looks, sucks, and they should have a better so job good. protecting him from that. No, but well, sure, my but... point is, Tony Todd was all in on yeah. this and wanted to the point that he some very very big things here that that are that I was like honestly like amazed. I don't know if I've ever. I don't know if there's another example of this really um, is that Tony Todd, um, he uh, came up with the, um, he came up with the entire backstory for Candyman. That was not in the script originally. Tony Todd was, was, and I'm sure like he was a little bit of like throwing ideas back and forth. But what I was reading was Tony Todd essentially came up with the backstory and they loved it so much that they, they went with it. They put it and not like, you know, actors were always like, um, like, Coming up, like when I was a kid, like you know, when I was like, yeah. you know, what, what was like, uh, you know, Robert De Niro's character in Meet the Parents, like as a kid. I'm sure Robert De Niro could tell you, <laughs> but that's not ending up in the movie. Right. Um, and so uh, Tony Todd, though the backstory he came up with is so compelling, yeah. they write it into the story, and it is it is a traumatic and horrifying backstory, uh, all about you know the history of racial violence in America, and specifically the sort of uh, Emmett Till variety of racial violence in which black men are are um, uh, are, are um, uh, attacked for um, uh, falling in love with a white woman, um, having any kind of sexual advances uh, or interactions with a white woman. Um, so there's, it's a really sort of nuanced backstory that hits at a lot of topics in, in America's history of racial violence. Um, and so he came up with um, that. He yeah, contributed so a lot to the look of the character. He had ideas for the look he of the character. So um, and he quotes that I've always wanted to find my own personal fan of the opera to play. That was one of his like motivations. And Tony, you damn did it. You did yeah, the damn thing. This is up there for me with the iconic movie uh, horror characters, fan of the opera, etc. You found your fan of the opera. Oh, for sure. Some could say you did better than fan of the opera. Um, I, uh, but he, he really had a lot to do with, with what we see with, with the Candyman that ends up on screen. That is so cool because... I look the the great horror movies and the great horror franchises, which this movie didn't get a franchise because of racism, probably, but whatever. But like you know, they're you know I love Michael Myers. You love Freddy Krueger. You like Chuck. I fucking love Candyman. He is a great scary slasher character. I love um the way he talks. I love his backstory. His like origin myth is so brutal and terrifying, and it's played with such gravity and forcefulness the way his voice 
um, uh, manifests uh, in that like sort of um, in your head drone is so cool. His his cool ass outfit rocks, and he has a. They cut his arm off, and they put a, he put a hook in him. He kills his victims with a big ass hook. That's fucking cool, and. He's the manifestation of like urban legends and he stays alive by people still whispering about him. And what Candyman's trying to do in this film is uh, Virginia Madsen plays a woman who is trying to um, learn more, you know, kind of reveal urban legends and how they are a uh, uh, they are part of a society's cultural, you know, what's going on with them. So. Oh, people didn't really die in the projects because Candyman killed them. They died because of A, B, and C, because of societal ills. But everybody says it's the Candyman, and this is how urban legends sort of are created and manifested. But of course, in this movie, uh, Candyman is real. You call him by saying his name five times in a mirror. That rules. And um, so Virginia Madsen's the woman who's going to like re- reveal this societal ill via uh, sort of uh, her academic paper. But of course, what happens is that Candyman is real, loops her in, becomes his obsession. He's her obsession. And Candyman uh, turns her into like the next Candyman, right? That's sort of what happens in Candyman. Spoiler alert. Um, But I love how Candyman stays alive because people are still whispering about him. And I love that part at the end when he's like, Virginia Madsen. You know, like, and when I kill you, my leg, like, I'm going to be more powerful than ever because my legend's going to spread. I killed the lady who was looking up Candyman. This is going to be, and it would be. It'd be like, we'd hear yeah. about it all the time. So it's just like, that, that really worked. To her, yeah. Their whole dynamic, his whole, like, Incredible. backstory, his whole, Incredible. like, thing. You're right, Brett. The societal, like, nature of it, or, like, it does an amazing job with cultural commentary without being cloying or obnoxious, but also being really fucking hard-hitting and, like, going for it in a, in a, in a no-nonsense way. Like, they're not half doing it. They're doing it, okay? They're doing it. White woman It's the, it's the projects, best. It's honestly, like, the Candyman, best tightrope. One of the best tightrope yes. acts I've ever seen where it goes harder than a lot of movies into – uh, history and cultural context. It doesn't just treat, and this is something that uh, Bernard um, uh, Rose specifically said he wanted to do. Was like, I think at this point in in sort of in movies and kind of Hollywood cinematic language, the um, the you know poor urban areas um, uh, uh, projects, um, you know, quote unquote, you know, at, at the time ghettos. Uh, these were presented in Hollywood movies as just sort of like. This is as, as as sort of just like like this sort of a, a a fact of life. Like these are just these these places are in cities, and it's primarily black people, and they're violent, and it's just kind of the way it is. And they're just sort of a part of American culture. Like never, there's so many movies that in no way take into account like history or it's like these places were constructed intentionally to be like this. They were not, you know, whether it's like redlining or it's white flight or it's the prevention of you know black soldiers after world war ii from using their gi uh bill loan in the same uh housing markets that white soldiers were allowed to use like these places were constructed robert moses in new york built the bridges at a certain height so that buses couldn't get in and out of black neighborhoods so that black kids couldn't go to the beach because that's where white children went right so these like you know the to treat to, to do any you know to to ever 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 present um poor black urban areas in movies and television as just sort of as just sort of like 
uh, existentially inevitable or something is such a is such a sort of uh, a failure uh, to know your history and to know uh, the cultural context of things. And Bernard Rose specifically said he wanted to do the opposite of that. And I think does a good job. We, we are told early, you know, there's he, he's not giving a thesis statement or dissertation on it, um, but there is enough information given to us early on that we are told that like Cabrini Green was something that was created intentionally, that it was not a, uh, a, a mistake or an act or an accident or inevitability. It was something that was created uh, intentionally by, you know, the city planners of Chicago uh, to marginalize the black community uh, in places and then not give them any, you know, the same kind of resources that, that, that the white people were getting elsewhere in the city. Um, so the movie gives you enough of that information to be like, great, thank you. Yes, this was not, this place was not, you know, it happened for a reason. Um, uh, but on the other hand, it doesn't then exclusively present the members of the, the, the inhabitants of uh, Cabrini Green, the members of this community, it does not exclusively present them as um, victims of, of white racial violence, right? It doesn't, it also just, it having established that history, it then just treats them as a community of people, a community that has folklore, that has all the sort of cultural uh, tenets that, that you know, that, that white culture or, or whatever culture has throughout history. It treats them as a community, it respects them as a community. Um, and then it also, Similarly, with the character of Candyman, you have this horrific story, uh, origin story of, of racial violence that, that connects into the broader historical themes. But then Candyman just gets to also be a character and be a fun character yeah, a and an character. evil, villainous character. Yeah. And it gets to like, he doesn't get sort of um, imprisoned in yeah. some like white director's uh, equation of racial politics where everything right. has to kind of like, you know every box has to be checked in every scene and this and that. Like, I, I think it's just such a great balancing act of how to, how to tell a story like this, yeah. where you don't ignore the context, but you don't, um, you also don't um, make it the only sort of lens through which black characters in film can be viewed or can be, or, or can sort of uh, tell their story or can act. Um, and the great turn, I think the, 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 the sort of developing love story between Virginia Madsen and Candyman is genius. I love it. Talk about a, like, maybe the best, you know, everybody always talks about act two troubles. The movie gets into the middle and it doesn't know what to do. It runs out of tricks. That's one of the great fucking act two, act three turns is making Candyman and Virginia Madsen into these sort of unrequited, will they, won't they, they like need, romance they story. Each other and and they, like, they're, it, they're all each other have and like she, how she falls in love with him, you know, or whatever. It's so, so good. It just falls apart so perfectly. And but when she gets to the end, when she's totally been uh, downtrodden and institutionalized and forgotten by everybody, it makes all the sense in the world that she would run back to the all she's got is candy man there's no there's no like there's no unbelievable there like it it was the perfect choice and that scene when he's got and he's made it okay guys candy man rules not only is it a cool badass backstory not only is it a cool hook he's a cool killer he's made out of bees yeah it fucking rules so Candyman, I love that part at the end when she's laying on the table and he's about to consume her or whatever, and like bees yeah. are falling out of his mouth onto her, and she's got covered in bees, he's covered in bees. I'm sorry to hear the actors got stung, but it looks amazing and it works gangbusters. It's so romantic, and Philip Glass's score he wants to make her is oh, incredible. This this is this is better than Halloween. This is my favorite horror score. This is the best yeah. horror score. Yeah. I was yeah. blown. I was like, you know why it's my favorite horror score? Because it's triumphant and happy. Yes, it's not well, he wants, scary wants, and spooky. It's triumphant and happy. It's genius. 
Candyman wants to make her immortal. He like he Let it's like it's you. he has he has a really wide range of like motivating impulses. You know, yeah. he's not just like Michael Myers kills. That's all Michael Myers knows right. how to do and does. And that's, that's what's what, great that's about why Michael Myers. Right. But Candyman is a rich like like you know old fairy tale old folklore kind of villain in which he has all these sort of motivating factors he wants to um he wants to essentially make virginia madsen his sort of like bride in the afterlife he's in love with kind that. of thing you, you know yes and he there is a line you referenced it, i think uh after virginia madsen has been um Everyone thinks she's doing the murders because Candyman has like framed her very well for doing the murders. And so it gets to the point where only Candy Candyman's the only one that she can talk to because he's the only one that knows the truth. Everyone else is believing the lie that she's the murderer. Candyman's the only one that she has any that she can speak to frankly and candidly. So, and then yeah. he says to her, she doesn't want to admit it though, because he's Candyman. And then he says to her, All you have left is my desire for you. Oh, exactly. All you that is a that is a stunning line yeah, that is I agree, bro. all you have left is my desire for you that is that's fucking that's like it's like you know pulitzer where that's, that's like that, that is a stunning line that you normally do not find in a Agreed. mainstream hollywood movie um you so often find one of like in it's either like you know it's it's too cliched and simple and cheesy or it's like trying to be smart by adding too many words into the sentence this is like the exquisite simplicity of all i all you have left is my desire for you oh my god your brain can run in circles around that sentence forever i mean there's stunning a, a, stunning fucking line and it's a good um example of how like yeah there's lots of um you know, urban planning stuff, lots of race stuff, but there's also just so much like, um, like feminist lens, horror movie, yes. um, desire, sexual tropes that are, are just so, uh, brilliantly realized and exciting and feel fresh. Um, the whole movie feels fresh. I actually couldn't believe how well every second of the movie worked. I loved every minute of it actually. And I was, um, surprised. And I thought the twists and turns were excellent. I love when, so she, she, she gets she calls Candyman because she's being flippant. Candyman murders some people. She gets framed. Her louse of a husband institutionalizes her. She wakes up out of like a forced medical induced coma a month later. And she's like, you know, how I'm going to prove to you that I'm not crazy. And she calls Candyman and Candyman bursts through her therapist's chest and rips him open with the hook. And, and then she and then Candyman is like, I saved you. And then, he, and then he's like, I bet he burst out the window. And I was like, holy fucking shit. I love Candyman. Yeah. And then she like yeah. escapes. And I, from that moment on, I was like, OK, wait a second. This yeah, this isn't just like a really good horror movie. Like this might be one of my, one of my favorites like, because it's so it's so hard to make a guy like a canon like a guy who rules. It's hard to make a fucking Chucky. Yeah. It's hard to make a, a a Michael Myers. And Candyman's one of my favorite guys in horror. He's so cool. He's so scary. He's um he, his backstory is rich and, his, and the performance is like so fun. Brett. This is this is a this is a blight on on my horror record. I, I haven't seen the the new one. Um, I, I haven't seen the new one either. I, we, I I, I'm either. watching I, it this gonna, week. I'm watching it this week. We'll talk about it next yeah, week. Yeah, I'm because, definitely watching it this week. Yeah. And it was. I just love the original Candyman so much. I was just sort of like not. No, interested yeah, in a remake. Well, everyone, but now everyone, I, no I one liked it. That's why I didn't watch it. I, everyone, it. no, everyone was it, soft yeah. on it. But now I got to watch just to see like what they did. And that why, was what it was too. Everyone, it. it was a little lukewarm. Everyone um, hated it. Was a little lukewarm. Um, yeah. 
Uh, so I was like, hey, I can probably. I like that those. actor. I, I, I forget his name. The guy who plays Candyman. He's, he's good. He's great. Uh, Doctor Manhattan from the Watchmen. Yeah, series. yeah. He, he's um, a good actor. So I'm whatever. Uh, I'm down. Candyman's awesome. I don't know why. I mean, I think we all can figure out why. But like, why wasn't there Candyman two, three, four, yeah. five, seven? Why isn't there like a bad one? Candyman uh, Bloodline. Yeah. Candyman the one when they go in the computer. I mean, we all know why. But right, like, right. that's a shame. He's such a good character. Yaya Abdul Mateen is that actor. Oh, that guy's uh, Candyman and Watchmen. Yeah. He's really solid. Um, all right, bro. Uh, t- Oops, sorry. Uh, so yeah, so I, I, yeah, I mean, this is just such a, it's such a, it's such a phenomenal movie. I, I think it's, I, I think it's the best mainstream horror movie of the '90s. I really don't know. I was going oh, through Blade. the list. I mean, you could argue Blade. You could argue Scream. Scream. Um, I think of Blade more as a comic book movie because I really like thinking of that as like the the, the definitive Marvel movie that what, you know what could have been with the Marvel Cinematic Universe there. Um, Scream is certainly a competitor, but Candyman, I mean, you talked about it with the character of Candyman. It is such a risk, and they nail it, but such a risk where, like, the easy move always is just have the monster do nothing. Less is more, right? Like Michael Myers, never say anything, move slowly, one outfit, right, one costume. Like, yeah. the xenomorphs, this yeah. and that, right? The, the, it's like... Always like this. The easiest thing is always just simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. And then, of course, there's better versions of that, you know, uh, and and bad versions of that. Mm-hmm. But to have a to go all in on a on a horror movie villain that is like basically sort of Shakespearean yeah. in his rhetoric is such a gamble because it. it can go so you know it, it can it, you know at worst it's just sort of dumb and fun I and guess. not scary, but like. But like not scary, right. but to really fucking nail it yeah. with this with this exquisiteness is 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 a triumph. Like his lines um, are are so good, and it's such a great example. It's like I, I hate when you have these characters who have been like alive for centuries and they just seem very like they seem like they were born like fifteen years ago. You know, <laughs> um, uh, there's a character in. Um, we should watch. Have you seen Queen of the Damned, the Aaliyah movie? It's like part of the Anne Rice yeah, universe. I know, I know you. It is any Queen of the Damned fans out there in the chat. Queen of the Damned, literally, they were like the studios were like new metal was like big, right? So like Corn mm. and Limp Bizkit and everything mm. were like popping off, and the studio was literally like, "Hey, we need like a new metal movie," and they mm. took this and they took this screenplay for this Anne Rice novel about Lestat, the like ageless vampire. And they literally in the movie make him like the lead singer of like a new metal band. And all the songs are written by Korn, by Jonathan Davis. It is like the craziest movie. It's so bad and so much fun. Um, but it's like a vampire ode to new metal. Um, and But my point is Lestat in this movie is supposed to be this centuries old vampire. And he's acting like some like, you know, like he, like, he, like he works at Hot Topic or something. You know, it's like it's very like, which is very fun. Mm. But like. I love when they go for the a- ancient, ageless kind of villain, yeah. and his 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 like rhetoric and his and his tone and his presence is it's actually believable that this is like an ancient creature who has been like wandering the dimensions, you know, um, for for um, you know 150, 200 years at this point. Yeah, please, everybody. Go. This is not what this episode's about. It's about appreciating Candyman, Driller Killer. Um, but go watch Queen of the Damned. You will not. Okay. If you're looking for a dumb no, we all, movie. We always need a horror wreck. Literally, Lestat the Vampire singing songs written by Korn. Okay? What what more do I need to say? No, go watch great. Queen of the Damned. Folks, uh, uh, Uncle Brian, 
are, are, is my son Enzo in there with you? Uh, he uh, he just left. I think he's getting his diaper changed. Love that for him. Yeah. yeah. Did you, now, Brian, before we did he leave uh, with a chaperone or did he just sort of waddle out? He, of he just rolled out, right? A uh, quick, quick question from the chat, uh, Brian. Uh, what do you think of the guitar tone in Candyman? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, this is a tough one because uh, that's that's where Driller Killer uh, is gonna, you know, win for me, guitar right. tone. But I do agree the freaking Philip Glass score. Oh, come on! Gosh. So good, so good. Joe, you you put it really, really well. I mean, that that is it was what a freaking choice to have this glorious, that's awesome score that's like yeah like it's triumphant it oh is triumphant gosh. it's so it's it's like joy to the world on christmas morning yeah. at church like it fucking it pumps you up yeah it's fucking good and like and that's why that's why you just like it's just part of like candy man's i know he like gets burned to death by the whole entire town at the end but like he's until then he's triumphant he's rocking and rolling and there's no way you're ever gonna put candy man down and yeah i've said it before uh, he's he's a really great uh, babysitter. He's a very good. He, he keeps, he keeps the, that. The, he's very the, you know, the kid's clean like, and happy. Mm-hmm. He's not crying yet. That's, that's right. a tiny baby. That yeah. is that is that is twenty four seven supervision. Yeah. The Candyman's providing for weeks, months. I know. I know. Yeah. I mean, he should have told. Maybe me, looks good. He should. He should have told his mother that he was taking him to make her feel a little bit better. But you could do. No, you, I, you, I don't. You, I don't you, endorse, you could do worse by babies. You could do worse by babysitters. You could do worse by babysitters than Candyman. Okay, folks, it is time to pick. It's time to put one of these films in the canon to be celebrated and revered. One of these films will go in the trash can and never to be seen by us again. Um, uh, Brett, you're on Zoom this week, and I don't know what that has to do with this, but I think that means you go first this week. I think that means you go yeah. first. Yeah. No, where, what are you putting in the canon? Um, I said it at the top of the show, is that this is this is going to be such a close game uh, to speak in baseball terminology, all it, all it was going to take is one bad pitch to lose the game. Right. You know, um, it's so close, so neck and neck. You know, one little hanging curveball, yeah. um, and then you're and then you're um, you know that's it. You're toast. You mm-hmm. lost. Uh, it's just a slim margin for error here, and because of that, uh, I'm putting a Candyman in the cannon. I'm putting Driller Killer sadly in the trash cannon. I will say though, I. Uh, flat out loved Driller Killer. I thought it was so smart and funny and weird. And Abel Ferrar is such a weirdo. Um, and I love that he acted in the movie. Um, yeah, me too. And it is, it's truly, truly a fascinating, fascinating movie that is, uh, like I said, playing in some very familiar archetypes of the 70s, but is transcending them through just pure kind of weirdness and, and, and a very, very sly comic instinct. It's a very funny movie, mm-hmm. and the, and the and like the fact that it it can be funny gets gets it through a lot of its material. I think without feeling um, derivative. Um, so that is a little uh, eulogy for for uh, Driller Killer. I will say I did. It just had you know it had a lot of the uh, earmarks of like a first, you know, a first feature film by an indie DIY director where there's just some, there is some little, like the band stuff. I thought, I felt like there was just such an easy fix there, which is just like, wow, the um, the band, that was the curveball that you're just, someone's Harper's taking the hanging, the hanging curveball was the excessively long shots of that band rehearsing, (laughs) particularly because 
the lead singer, but single they coil were sort of setting him up as kind of a foil or a nemesis to Driller Killer or kind of a, a sort right. of something, and that that never really pays off. So the fact that so much time is just shown, and look, the footage is fun as hell. If this was a documentary about like punk and no wave in New York, I would be all about that footage. If it was a uh, a, a deleted scene on a DVD of Driller Killer, I'd be very excited. But it does slow the movie down, and it never really pays off in any in any kind of um, interesting way. Um, wow. So that was just a really a kind of a kind of a glaring. I say this very lightly because, like, what do I know that Abel Ferrar doesn't? He's a fucking he's a genius, fun, weird director. I but I say this like it just felt like a mistake. It just felt it just felt like a something that could have easily been fixed. Great and artists wasn't. make mistakes. Um, yeah, it just felt like a kind of mistake. Um, and uh, in addition, I had one other thing that was a, was a hanging curveball for me. It might have missed two pitches. You know, I really liked Driller Killer. There's no doubt about it. But, folks, you won't be surprised to hear I am putting Candyman right into the canon. Um, Driller Killer is awesome. It's got splatter. It's got great kills. It's got a grungy attitude. It has fun, great acting. It has weird bits. It's, it's very, very good. But Candyman doesn't really have any mistakes. Or if it does, like... I love him. He really does. Man. Um, yeah. It's just great. It crescendos the the bad guy. The I mean, I like the Driller Killer very much, but you know the can- Candyman is so unique. He's so fucking fun. I love Candyman. It was definitely one of, if not the greatest horror movie of the '90s. Maybe Scream. We'll, we can all talk about it later, but definitely one of them. And I don't know why there isn't seven of these Candyman movies. I fucking it'd be the easiest guy to bring back. It's not like Jason. He's dead. He comes back every single time. It's like Candyman is just like he is the the embodiment of myth. Make fucking twelve Candymans. Um, the myth of Candyman lives on. Everyone knows about Candyman. I love Candyman. <clears throat> Um, I am happy get him a, to put, get him a, yeah. get him a damn time machine. Get him to go kill those fucking racists. I can think of like 50 candy mans. We all can candy man's awesome. It's such a great villain. He's got big gross claw. I love. So at the end of the film, Virginia Madsen dies and um, she by accident slash on purpose kind of helped kill Candyman when the community burned down a big pile of trash. Candyman was in. Don't worry about it. At the end of the film, they're at her funeral. No one's there. And then the entire community comes and like and the little boy who the Candyman stole or like her, his older brother or something. I don't know. Like throws Candyman's hook into her grave with a big clunk. And then she turns into the Candyman when you say her name five times in the mirror. Love Candyman. Candyman's going in the canon. Brian, what do you think? We put Candyman in the canon. Do, do, do you allow that? Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, it seems like I don't have a, I don't have a vote at this point. Well, uh, no, you have a vote. You're just if, you, if it, is your vote driller killer? No, my vote would be Candyman. yeah. Those Candyman, <laughs> Candyman, so Candyman's good. so rock solid. They don't really. There's very few mainstream horror movies. Candyman's one of those movies where the, yeah. it, it, it hits the beats of a movie, so you're like, oh, it might stink because it's so hits the beats. No, 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 no. Every one of those beats and how they fill those beats is so enjoyable, so well done, yep. so exciting. Yep. It's a great film. God bless Candyman. Folks, that sadly concludes Spooky Season here on Weekend at Bergman's. Please welcome our spooky canon members, Alien, Suspiria, The Craft, the Island of Dr. Moreau, and Candyman. Better luck next lifetime to the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, Driller Killer, The Witch, The Faculty, and Predator. 
Guys, oh, I am I will say, though, yeah, R- I'm, I'm, RIP, three special RIPs to uh, Driller Killer, The Witch, um, and Predator. Uh, RIP, yeah. I really enjoyed watching really those movies. Good. And I see a lot of best of both worlds here. I see a lot of people in the chat saying they, they're going to watch Driller Killer tonight. I assume a lot of people have already seen Candyman, probably less people have seen Driller Killer. So if anything, yeah. we acknowledge Candyman's brilliance. Genius. But I'm encouraging you to go watch Driller Killer. Oh, yeah. It's a really exciting, weird uh, film with a lot of surprises. The one that we did not mention, I don't want to, because people are going to go watch it, I actually don't want to spoil it because it's we, It's not like a plot point. It's like a thematic ending. I thought the ending of Driller Killer yeah. was phenomenal and almost, almost, um, like literally like I was, the plane was like going down. I was like, there's no way this is going to be Candyman. It made you know, a couple little things here and there. That ending, I was like, ooh. Yeah. That ending is fucking sharp. Yeah, Driller Killer and gets all better. All I will like say is it happens yeah. over a dark screen mm. with just dialogue. Mm. And it's fucking Yeah, it's cool. It's really fucking good. I'm still thinking about it. Yeah, it's like it's it there's a lot and it's very like oh, go watch Driller Killer. RIP for us. Yep. But I'm glad I got a real good viewing yep. um today while yep. I was making my son uh lunch. That's um uh, that was the second time I watched. Okay, I watched it for real once myself. Okay, right. but then I watched it while I was making lunch for Sandy okay. to you know, review it. Folks, um, this concludes weekend at Bergman. Spooky season, of course. Real spooky season ends at Thanksgiving. But we will be watching horror all year round on this podcast. Do not worry. Um, Brett, before we go, do you have a little announcement yes. to make? I've got a big announcement. This is very fun and kind of crazy, and we'll see if we can pull it off or if it's a complete disaster. But that's how we do things at Forever Dog. You just announce it before it's ready, and then you have to do it. It'll be fun. That's 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 how we do things. Uh, and and um, so I'm going to announce this. Yeah. And then we're going to give it our best damn shot. And I hope you join us for it yeah. this Friday. Bang. That's Friday, um, November is that fourth? Fourth. Right? Bang. Friday, November fourth. We are going to do a very special in honor of my birthday, my fortieth birthday which is not on the 4th, but it's close to the 4th. In honor of my 40th birthday, we are doing a nine-hour nine. hour. live stream. Live stream. Eight hours. Sorry, no, eight hours. That's what nine I was going to say. Five. Eight hours. Going nine to five. Thank you. Eight-hour live stream. We're doing an eight-hour live stream from nine to five. Now, what's going to happen on this live stream? One, it's in honor of my birthday. It's going to be a big, fun party. Hopefully, people drop by. Hopefully, it's a big blast. Here's what we're doing, though. Yeah. In Bergman style, we were watching two movies, yeah. two movies, both of which have something to do with, with the significance of it being eight hours. The first movie we are watching, and we're going to have to press play as soon as the live stream starts, and then it won't end until the live stream is over. You're saying, what is this? What is this? Is it fucking Cremaster Cycle? What are they watching? What are they watching? We're watching Andy Warhol's Empire, baby. Bang. That's Andy Warhol's eight-hour, eight-hour uncut shot of the empire state building in real time we're watching andy warhol's empire eight hours uncut single shot single shot it's fucking i don't know we'll we'll probably we'll we'll let you know how it goes i'm sure it's dumb yeah we are also going to watch so we don't lose our minds we are also going to watch nine to five okay with dolly parton Okay. And, and Lily Tomlin and others, nine to five. So we're going to watch nine to five. Mm-hmm. I don't know how we're going to do this. We're going to like superimpose. I think we'll probably just Empire is literally just an uninterrupted shot of the Empire State Building. We'll probably just superimpose nine to five over it or something right. and watch them sort of simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I don't know how this is going to work, but we're going to watch Empire. We're going to watch Nine to Five. One's going to go in the cannon. One's going to go in the trash cannon. Yeah. Um, uh, there will be guests. There yeah. will be surprises. Mm. There will be lists. We're going to do fucking crazy ass movie awesome. lists. You're going to love it. You're going to get in the chat and tell us what to put in and what not to put in it's these lists. Be fucking great. Uh, it's going to be interactive. It's going to be so much fun. Maybe Enzo will come. Um, I'm going to be celebrating my birthday, so I'm probably going to get wild. I don't know if I'll make it the full. I don't know if I'll make it the full eight hours. Wild Randy, well, Wild Randy, you be better there. come. You better. Wild Randy's going to come out, okay. um, and you guys better be there because it's going to be fun. We're going to get lit. Um, we're going to get tanked. We're going to talk about nine to yes. five. We're going to talk about Empire. We're going to make a big fat list. We're going to have some jokes and some guests. It's going to be a fucking blast. Eight and hours, half, and we're not going to go to work because we it's nine to five during a work day. Starts at 9 a.m. on Friday Pacific time. Ends at 5 p.m. Ever heard Pacific of it? Time. Literally 9 to 5. Got it. And at the second it starts, we're going to press play on Empire, right? The second. Okay. Second it starts, that. we're pressing All play right. on Empire. Folks, All I'll right? see you on Friday. And until then, Friday. happy Halloween. It's spooky season. It ends Thanksgiving. Watch more horror movies. Follow me on Letterboxd. Follow Brett on Twitter. Follow Brian on uh, Twitter. And what else are you on, Brian? I don't know. You on anything? Oh, yeah, follow me on Instagram. Follow Brian on Instagram. Check out his new musical, I Loved at the Elysian, this weekend. Three rats. It was fucking hilarious. Uh, oh, wow. God bless you. God bless America. God bless uh, uh, Halloween. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.